You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And this episode is going to contain some spoilers for the series through all five seasons. Uh, just so you know, if you haven't seen the show in its entirety, this episode could contain spoilers for, for the entire series. And in this episode, we are interviewing the authors of The Science of Orphan Black, the official companion, Casey Griffin and Nina Nesseth. Yes, we were really excited to get to talk with them. We read the book and we both really enjoyed it. There's a chapter on cloning, on chimerism, on Rachel's brain injury and recovery, as well as a chapter on transhumanism, which is the idea that the human race can evolve beyond its current mental and physical limitations like we see in the Neolution movement. The book covers all of the big topics as well as answers common questions that Clone Club has had over the seasons, such as should ha- should Katya's fingerprints have pulled up that match for Sarah's? Spoiler, no, and Casey and Nina explain why in the book. And we felt very privileged that they were willing to talk with us about the book and, and Orphan Black and, and all sorts of great science-y things. Yes, all true. Uh, would y'all mind introducing yourselves? Sure. Uh, my name is Nina Nesseth. I am a professional science communicator. I'm based up in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. And uh, my background's in like biomedical biology, but uh, of course, I'm a huge fan of Orphan Black. And I am Casey Griffin. I am getting my PhD in developmental and stem cell biology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And my science background is basically in genetics, developmental biology, and stem cells. Um, And I'm also a huge fan of Orphan Black. So how did y'all come to be writing this book, talking about the science of Orphan Black? Like, how did you uh, become attached to this project? Oh, gosh. So this is actually, it's kind of a funny story. And like, very true to how Clone Club sort of works as a community, because Casey and I met at the first San Diego fan meetup that uh, BBC America held for uh, like an Orphan Black fan meetup. And Casey had won an Orphan Black trivia uh, contest at the event. And I had, my friend and I had won a uh, Alison Hendricks theater scene recreation contest where we had to kind of like act out a little skit from one of the scenes. And so Casey and I got to like go on stage together and meet the cast and uh, take a bunch of photos and get some orphan black swag, which was, you know, probably it felt like I like, sort of peaked right at <laughs> totally. in terms of, like, fan experience. And we didn't talk at all. We were um, too overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. I think we were in a group hug together, but we, we did not talk at all. And then the internet clone club kind of, realized that we should be friends and uh, connected <laughs> us over Casey, for a while, she'd been writing these Orphan Black Science Time uh, Tumblr posts that I had admired from afar. A little bit later on, I had gotten the opportunity uh, to pitch the idea of writing Orphan Black uh, Science Recaps, like for every episode for the the Mary Sue. And um, I couldn't do it without Casey. So we we did that together. And That was pretty much the launching point for our book. We ended up getting approached by our agent, Maria Vicente from PS Literary Agency. And she was like, hey, your recaps are awesome. This needs to be a book. From then on, like, like, yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) It was one of those things where we were so, we had to take a step back and be like, whoa, we can write 
the book. <laughs> it was it was like a crazy idea we hadn't even considered. But we knew that if we were going to do it, it would be the both of us writing it together. That was about two years to from from when we decided to write the book. It was about two years, mm-hmm. I think, eh, that we were working on it. Yeah, it was right after season three had aired. So yeah, about two years. Yeah, and then uh, it got picked up by ECW Press, and they were able to uh, make connections with Graham Manson, and uh, it became the official companion. So it wasn't always the official companion for the show, but it became the official companion with Graham and uh, with Kasima Herder's blessing. Awesome. That's that's like a, you know, like a like a fandom fairy tale or something. <laughs> right. <Pretty much. laughs> And so I was very impressed that you were able to incorporate so much of the stuff from season five in a book that came out pretty quickly after season five. So did y'all sort of have a sense of what was going on in season five a little bit before the rest of us did? Yes, we yeah. <laughs> we were told <laughs> we were told the general science ideas a while ago because Kasima Herder had at least known that we would be. They would be focusing on um, like longevity and life expansion. So we had a general idea. And then, yeah, once they finished writing the scripts for season five, they sent them our way so we could include all the necessary information, which yeah, was pretty so, awesome. Yeah, I think we I think we had the general idea around like September. So before they were maybe started shooting. But uh, yeah, yeah, we we were getting the scripts around January, February, I think, and it was brutal to have to know everything oh, and not God, tell anybody, yes. <laughs> except each other. And I would read faster than Casey, so I had to like read it and then sit there and be like, Casey, have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? <laughs> I was stressing her out so much. I'd be like, Oh, I'm too busy. I only read one. She was like, No. <laughs> And then she texts me, ah, just like capital yeah. A's. I knew she had read what I had read. <laughs> this sounds like Chris and I. <laughs> it does. Chris usually got to watch the episodes before we did. She's like, I want to talk to you, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of our conversations, uh, even when we're watching the show, a lot of our conversations back and forth, because um, I would read the scripts first, but when it came to actually watching the show, Casey would always watch it first. So a lot of it would just be like a lot of screaming at each other over text messages. Yeah, (laughs) incoherent, yeah, babble, nonsense texts. It was, yeah, that's how we communicate. Spoil each other, but we got all the spoilers. So something I really appreciated reading the book was I felt like it it gave me a much better sense of the big picture of kind of the science storylines of the show. Because I feel like most of the time I understood the individual revelations or beats as they were playing out. But then I was as I was reading your book, I realized, oh, I hadn't made that connection of this reveal in season five to this connection to this reveal in season one. So thank you for that, for really painting a nice big picture of the the science of the show. Yay. Thanks. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I was actually wondering what topics that you covered in the book were you most excited to talk about oh gosh uh, for me it's it's always I, I, I just love talking about Cosima so the clone disease in and of itself was exciting for me also personally the stuff about creating the cure and all of that is the closest to the kind of work I do so I looked forward to writing about that just because it felt like 
writing about what I do every day. Yeah, all the genetic stuff is really Casey's bread and butter. I know, I think probably the chapter I was most excited about was um, kind of going into the neuroscience uh, elements of like Rachel's uh, Rachel's injury and recovery, because I'm all about brains. I'm all about uh, anatomy and neuroanatomy. But like surprisingly, something that surprised me was how much I loved going into the history of a lot of the science in the show because Orphan Black did a really good job of kind of sneaking all these nods in everywhere, some more obvious than others, to major experiments and history that kind of led to our understanding of science today. Um, and also like making sort of comments on the sorts of um, problems and biases that that history has introduced um, into our understanding of science today. And it's, yeah, I, I was surprised in how how interested I was in in digging into sort of like those scientists and science philosophers that are like big names, but you don't really pay attention to outside of your textbooks. That actually kind of leads me into another question. I was wondering if there were things that they brought up in the show that you had to research to see if they were true or how true they were. Because, like, the eyelid bone growth thing... Horrifying. Uh, is horrifying, <laughs> but also comes to mind in, in this category. Because I feel like I heard something about that, but maybe never knew if it was actually a thing. Because it doesn't sound really real. You're, you're, you're very likely to dismiss it when you see it on the show. But So I was very curious about your, your case study feature on Crystal, where you talked about that. Right? It sounds like, it sounds totally like some sort of, like, magazine that you see at, like, the corner store that's just, like... Lady Grillian bones in her eyelids. <laughs> they click like castanets. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that 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 example was one that we kind of had to look into a little bit more, but it was built on something where I was like, I have heard of this case before and read about this case and about those sorts of uh, uh, crystals kind of forming and bone formation kind of forming um, in response to the different um, chemical components of uh, different cosmetic uh, procedures but I think the one that I had to do the most digging into outside of the clone disease because the clone disease is it's, it's a novel disease uh, that they created for the show but it's based on a lot of different diseases in certain ways so a lot of a lot of that was kind of like piecing together the different yeah. different elements from different illnesses like a puzzle yeah it was yeah. a puzzle to figure out what they took from where and how it all worked together right uh, yeah, but I think I think it was probably in terms of like how much of this is real or how much of this is based on something real was the, uh, the Neodolution maggot bots. Mm. Um, yeah, especially the sure. maggot bots is like a gene delivery, like a gene therapy delivery system because it's, it's like a horribly inefficient way to, <laughs> to go about that sort of treatment. Yeah. That was, that was an interesting one trying to like dig into like different like entomology textbooks. I had, I have a, I have a colleague who's an entomologist and I just held him up, held up a picture of the maggot bot to him. And I was like, Hey, Dan, what kind of maggot is this? <laughs> <laughs> Did he know? I learned this. I learned this. The first thing I, the main thing I learned was that maggots are really hard to identify because mm. <laughs> they all just kind of look like maggots. <laughs> uh, unless you can like get right in there and like count cilia, like count little hairs on them and stuff. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So now you know something more about maggots. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All our first conversations about the maggot butts had to do with like real life organisms that will be that sort of parasitic entity that also might deliver 
some sort of genetic material. It was all looking into all sorts of weird bugs. <laughs> yeah, like there's, uh, I remember I found that one study that that looked at schistosomes, like a type of worm that oh, they were yeah, using. Yeah, worms, yeah. Yeah, they were like using their eggs or using, just using them in general to uh, to look at treating different, I think it was bowel uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. And, and they were proposing them as a potential treatment because they're parasites and they're really good at hiding from the immune system. And I was like, hmm. But like maggots aren't exactly like, they don't have that same sort of skill set, right? Like, like if maggots not going to put, you know, great at hiding from immune system on its resume. But I mean, it might. <laughs> <laughs> we all lie on our resumes, don't we? <laughs> well, right. Yeah. You know, these ones are altered already. They're cyborg yeah. maggots. It's disgusting. It sounds like, Casey, you did not enjoy your etymology class very much. <laughs> I'm not a big bug person. It's kind of gross. Well, I think they're cool. <laughs> that was like my worst nightmare was that scene when uh, he uh, Dr. spits the worm at Delphine. Yeah. Ugh, I was going God. to say, season four was, was like, not kind to you then. Yeah. Uh, yuck. I'm glad you brought up the Maggotbots, though. That was actually one of my favorite sections of the book, particularly because you you have a, a little section where you talk about why this sort of Maggotbot model, model kind of makes sense, talking about like the parasitoids versus parasites and yeah. and uh, the fact that it might be able to hide from immune systems and things like that. That was really fascinating to me. Gross, but fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like right now, we do have probably better vectors, but like, it's so neat to think about like how this could work if someone decided that that was, you know, the way to go for, for a gene therapy delivery system that could like live inside a body. Yeah. You mentioned that it was an odd choice to put it in the cheek since that's a fairly vulnerable place for it to be. The only advantage seemed to be that it was close to the, to the brain. Did you have any thoughts of where it might be better placed in the body? That's a great question. I mean, I would think something even just like your arm or your leg or something because your cheek is so, you know, there's so much wear and tear in that area. You know, how many times do you bite your cheek accidentally while you're eating? And so that just seems like such a a delicate place. Yeah, even just like somewhere more internal. Like, I, I don't know. I, I was guessing somewhere more in your like abdominal cavity or something just oh, like oh yeah yeah right like, right like into just, your stomach yeah, just like, or something just like tuck it right into like your like your mesentery or something like that just like yeah just, like, just give it a little like cozy place in between like the folds of your intestines or something somewhere like this more internal where you're less likely to you know damage it by some sort of impact or by yeah any sort of like mechanical injury because like you're you're especially since like your torso and your abdomen are kind of like built to protect squishy things <laughs> it, it just seems like a better idea to to tuck it in somewhere in there where your body's already kind of like built to protect it <laughs> it's true and also it uh, it occurs to me it sounds like stephanie is planning on <laughs> on implanting maggot bots <laughs> i'm doing it better than neil did i appreciate efficiency is all i'm saying <laughs> yeah just find like just find the good artery and uh, so that, you know, if it's if it's uh, delivering through, oh, because you have to have that like neurotoxin fail safe, too. So you want it to get pumped around quickly, hook it up to some artery and then tuck it somewhere, 
where it's not going to get chewed on by accident. (laughs) (laughs) This makes perfect sense to me. Also, it looks like Stephanie is making notes mentally. (laughs) I'm a little worried. (laughs) Another thing that really sort of struck me at the end of the book was I kind of felt fuzzy about Project Caster, about the purpose and what was going on there and stuff like that. I felt that way already. I feel like reading your book, I feel that way even more because <laughs> I feel like you you introduced a lot of questions about, you know, they, they kind of hinted at what they're doing over here, but they didn't really say. And they might have been doing this, but they didn't really say. So do you similarly feel a little confused about Project Caster? Yeah. So yeah, so Project Caster, as far as far as it's sort of elucidated in the scripts and in the show, was like we know it was an offshoot, uh, an offshoot of, well, not quite the same project as Project Lita, but like Cody was kind of running with it. Eventually, it's it, like that's the thing. It's like it's cl- un- unclear whether from the beginning she was planning to exploit that uh, that Caster pathogen as this sort of uh, eugenics tool, we'll say. But, like, we know that eventually that's what it became, if not what she was planning from the beginning. But it was just, like, it's sort of unclear as to how she was going to implement it, if they were just going to, like, you know, just send the casters out into the world, or if they're going to, you know, turn it into some sort of um, kind of side-by-side project with what we saw with the the Blue Zone cosmetics, where it's, like, delivering gene therapy through cosmetics, or are we also creating like a cheaper variety that's delivering a pathogen through cosmetics. Like I think some of the confusion comes from the fact that I think the clone disease kind of disrupted all of that work and whatever the goals were initially, it became a big problem that this disease was killing off the clones. And so Cody had to switch all of her efforts towards that. And so, and that's the point that we saw. So we didn't really get a good view into what the purpose exactly specifically was before they ran into these issues. Because we know like from the get go for project Lita, like we know from Ethan's side, he was more on the side of just saying like, oh, we're creating clones as proof of concept just to see that we can. And then we know from Susan Duncan's side that she and uh, Westmoreland were introducing synthetic sequences in hopes of kind of manipulating the LIN28A gene to have longer lifespan and seeing if that manipulated gene would uh, would manifest, if the traits would manifest in that clone generation. But then like what Cody was running with, it doesn't, they never say that they're trying to do like the same sort of experiment with the caster clones. And since she's kind of like run it as military, it sounds like they're kind of trying to weaponize something from the get-go. We don't know if there's a different sequence that they introduced and we're experimenting with with the casters um, because nothing like that's ever said. And basically, especially in season five, as soon as they sort of established that, you know, LIN28A is the focus, they kind of said, okay, well, we found it. We know that's manifested in the surprise daughter generation in Kira and in Helena's babies. And so Lita's one, we're just going to completely ignore the caster experiment and then just terminate it completely, which is, which is really interesting because you would think that they'd still have some sort of ends with caster. If their goal was using that pathogen, you would think that they would still be useful in some way. But uh, basically their story just amounted to the idea that the caster clones were just too glitchy to be successful, and so they just terminated the experiment. 
I don't know about you guys, but I always got the feeling watching the show that the scientists were just kind of like, well, since we've got this going, why don't we just do this too? Like the, I mean, the, the, I know that sounds weird. The, the social aspect to Project Lita, because it, it is yeah. so messy. Yes, mm-hmm. it's messy and really random and not that carefully orchestrated. It just feels like somebody in the group was kind of like, hey, can I do this too since we've already got this running? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. kind of what I'm getting you with You mean Caster. like the whole fact that they sent them out into the world and had monitors to kind of observe yes. right. their development? Okay, yeah. yeah. No, because totally... I think you mentioned at some point in there too that it seems really... It's it's not good science because like the monitors are there's no set pattern for the monitors so the monitors can do whatever they want yeah like, y'all sounded super skeptical about the social aspect of the of the later like experience when, experiment when I was reading that like they they sound pretty skeptical of how this was all set up <laughs> but I was even I was talking about it with my spouse who's a, an anthropologist and a qualitative researcher and even she was like yeah I mean they're not trained the people they have monitoring the clones you don't know how they're going to collect the data what type of data they're going to collect it's just not yeah. a well set up experiment yeah like no you're right why yeah. would you do that because <laughs> Because, yeah, if if the point is to make it an experiment, you need as few variables as possible. And they're just like, eh, we'll have a spouse over here and a secret lover over here and whatever. It's <laughs> just, like, this one's going to know what's going on, but not this but one. But this one's and- not, yeah. And this one knows everything. And this one's kind of sketchy, but hey, we'll use her anyway. Yeah, it's like, like just such a great way to skew yourself. <laughs> I mean, it did seem like they had a very thorough worksheet. <laughs> They did have a very thorough worksheet. You do make a good point, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. They just, I don't know. It was kind of like, whatever. But who thought it was a good idea to make Donnie a monitor? Like, <laughs> no. But do you think yeah. there could be usefulness to that data that they did collect, even though it was very, you know, the collection itself was not particularly well executed? I mean, they they had a lot of observation of the different clones, so they were able to, like, really distinguish the differences between them. But a lot of those differences could have been, like, observed in other ways, too, speaking from, like, the more traits uh, aspect of it. I guess personality-wise. Personality-wise, but using, even then your reporting is really biased. Right. But, I, I, I mean, at least in the case of Allison, like, well, you would think that her spouse, if anyone else, would know her best. Obviously, mm-hmm. he kind of didn't, but, you know, he would think. Yeah, yeah, and then there was, like, the usefulness of, like, sending, like, the the lab teams in the middle of the night. But that's, again, that's a collection that could have been done differently. That, yeah, That was the only thing real. I could really think of is that perhaps by having the monitors, it gave them more direct access to taking samples from the clones, potentially. Because I suppose they could have gone through doctors if they were trying to keep them naive to the clone experiment. But I don't know. That was the only thing I could come up with. Just needed somebody to unlock yeah. the door. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's, it's really cool to think about, like, the amount of data you could get from doing, a, like, a longitudinal study with clones. Because, like, the most, like, we have a few famous, like, longitudinal studies, like, twin studies, like the Minnesota twin study that we talk about in the book, that has given us a lot of um, insight, if not, like, concrete information, at least a lot of insight into, like, kind of what shapes a person who is pretty much, like, genetically identical or close to it at birth. Um, and to have clones, it's like almost as you know as good as it can get for for really seeing how nurture and other elements um, 
influence a person, but it's just, it's just such a messy experiment, even with everything kind of like really controlled and contained, um, just with like so many variables that like, it's already a really tough thing to, to measure and to report on. And the fact that they kind of just <laughs> threw whatever kind of Joe Blow monitor at some of the clones to, to do the reporting just makes it, yeah, just makes it even messier. So I, I, I'm really curious to see what, uh, what, Neolution is doing or has done with any with all that informa- information like they have all these files you know of like almost 300 clones sitting in you know drawer somewhere on in the file some somewhere at dyad and like what are they using it for what have they used it for so an aspect of the book that i really liked was the different case studies where you used one of the clones to talk about a particular topic and and some of them i feel like they felt rather uh like a logical thing to talk about like with tony you talk about androgen replacement therapy with helena you talked about like um thought reform uh, but i was wondering if you had any other uh, topics that you maybe toyed talking about in in connection to the clones because like uh, for example with beth you talked about like ssris and snris makes sense to talk about that in regards to beth but maybe uh, there were some other things i thought you might have considered talking about too so i was just wondering if there were any like discarded case study topics we definitely did some of them were like as you said tony was just like obvious that we should talk about androgen replacement therapy but for some of them i remember with MK, we definitely toyed around a couple ideas. We thought about talking about maybe autism because she it was revealed in the comics that she is autistic. And there were a couple others. With Crystal, we definitely threw around a couple ideas. Allison was a, at first a bit difficult, I feel like, as well. Yeah, yeah, we had a hard time finding what to talk about for Allison. Beth, I kind of felt like we always wanted to talk about some aspect of depression because, you know, it's a very prominent part of the show when she jumps in front of the train. So it kind of made sense to talk about something in connection with that for her. But yeah, it was definitely, I feel like MK, Crystal and Allison were definitely the ones we talked about the most. And I know we had another topic for Kasima that I was like, I was lobbying for and I can't remember what it was. Because you were like, no, I've got this. And I was like, but what about this for (laughs) Kasima? And I can't for the life of me remember what it was. Yeah, whatever it was, you you would come up with the idea and you told me about it. But I had already, like, done some of the work for the whole, like, medical marijuana stuff. So I was like, oh, I got this. This is fine. But, yeah, I can't remember what it was. Whatever it was, I was really excited for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For the the Sarah case study, you you talked about Sarah as the wild type, which is a a comment that Kasima makes on the show. And I hadn't really made the connection (laughs) uh, to the fruit flies because I'm like, oh, that's why in biology class, when we're doing little cross thingies, we use capital W's and lowercase w's when we're talking about the flies because it's referring to the wild type of their little fruit flies. And, and something that you mentioned in, in that section about in the case study of Sarah was uh, the idea that they might have left Sarah and Helena fertile on purpose to sort of stand in as a wild type to compare to the mutations as the clones. I hadn't really thought about that as, a, as an option before. So that scene where Cosima t- uh, says that she's the wild type is my favorite scene in the whole show. I'm like... St- as such a dork for those two 
and their like sister relationship. I, I just can't even handle it. So that was actually a one of the Tumblr Science Time posts I wrote, just talking about Sarah as the wild type, not as much in detail as we go into in the book, but it definitely was something I always thought about because for every experiment I set up in the lab, you always have to have a control that is as close to whatever would be considered wild type. It just felt like it made sense that there would be a clone that was more wild type than the rest of them. And ideally that would be someone with like no synthetic sequences, but I guess even just making them more with the ability to be fertile and just like different from the rest would be, you know, something you would think they would, would have thought of. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Clearly they haven't been left alone with all of their normal or like, you know, original genome because they, you know, both Helena and uh, Sarah have, you know, Kira and Donald and Arthur, um, who who have you know that manipulated gene, but like in terms of how how in their generation their 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 traits are expressed, like they have they're both fertile. So yeah, no, it's it was just it's just a cool thought experiment, um, and it would make a lot of sense as Casey said. I had a question about Kendall and the the Chimera thing. <laughs> Love it. The, 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 the chimera you know, thing. The chimera, they they the spend thing. a whole chapter on the chimera thing. It's kind of complicated, but yes. <laughs> well, it's just the the fact that she's a chimera. They make a big thing of it. But can you explain to me if that is a factor in her being chosen as the original for the, the original lines. source because it they make it sound like it is but i if it is i i don't quite understand how <laughs> okay to I be mean, honest i'm pretty sure and casey you can you can say whether you think i i, I i'm right or not but I, i'm pretty sure it's just like when they were going through because they were going through uh, looking at prison inmates and 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 taking swabs of them and when they discovered kendall's chimerism I, I feel like with, with Ethan especially, they were just like, that's so cool. We got to use her because her biology is so cool. And Yeah, like, that definitely yeah, seemed like what it was to me. Yeah. It's like they didn't go into it with the plan of finding a chimera. And I feel like, I mean, they probably went into it with the idea that they wanted to have this like XX clone line versus an XY clone line. But who knows? Maybe they were just in it for like, one clone line and then they come across Kendall and they're like well this is awesome like let's just run with this yeah I totally think that's what it is because outside of the chimerism there's nothing about Kendall's cells or her cell lines individually that are that are you know especially special I mean they talk about how they had to do the manipulations to like LIN28A for them and like all the other synthetic sequences so it's it seems like, yeah, Kendall was just nothing special except that she had two different cell lines inside of her. Yeah, like she wasn't like Giannis with a cool gene already. Yeah. Or gene variant. So this is perhaps me just speculating out of a lack of, of scientific knowledge. Uh, but you do <laughs> Speculating because you don't know any better. <laughs> 
But you do mention, <laughs> uh, you go through like the sort of the interesting idea of the chimeras, uh, of a chimera's immune system, because it allows these two cell lines to exist in one body without attacking a, a, the foreign cell line. And do you think, is it possible, are people asking, could that potentially make a chimera more suitable for this type of cloning experiment? Because there's like manipulation of putting parts of one cell into another with like somatic cell nuclear transfer. It's definitely possible because, yeah, it's a very unique situation because it's it's different than like conjoined twins because they are identical twins. So it's identical cell lines. So there's no immune system problem. This is really like a person with another piece of some other person inside of them. And that doesn't get attacked. I mean, most of the time, a chimera doesn't even know they're a chimera until something happens where they accidentally find out about it. And so, yeah, it definitely would, a person who is a chimera would definitely be an interesting subject to look at when you're thinking about doing these sort of manipulations. They would definitely be an interesting person to do you know, maggot bot studies on. I'll make a note. <laughs> <laughs> Add that to Add your, that your notes. Uh, Casey, actually, because uh, I don't know the answer to this, um, but do you know if there is any sort of increased risk or any risk at all for, for immune reactions with SCNT? Because it's just like a single I mean, cell being manipulated, right? It's not... Right. It's a single cell, so there's none of that. There's no specialized you know, immune cells or anything. Um, yeah, but there is still, the- yeah, there is still like a fail rate because it just won't always work when you try to take a nucleus from another cell and put it into this cell. It'll sometimes just be like, no thanks. <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely going to be a fail rate. But yeah, so I don't know if if a chimera cells would be any different than anyone else's for simple... SCNT. Yeah, because my, my suspicion is that it wouldn't really, because it's like separate from the from the body's immune system and that body's immune function, it probably wouldn't have an effect. That's kind of what I figured, yeah. but I thought I'd ask the question anyway. <laughs> oh, no, it was a great question. I am using my editorial privileges here to clean up a couple of questions that I asked extremely poorly. I was nervous and rambly, and I didn't write down my questions with enough details. I want to say thank you to Casey, who did her best to answer my terrible question before I could clarify it. So I had a question about the ID sequences included in the clone's genomes, such as Cosima's 324B21. You know, in Biology 101, we learned that one of DNA's big jobs is coding for proteins, but the ID sequences are non-coding. I asked Casey if she could explain how non-coding sequences work, and then I wondered if the dyad scientist worried that the ID sequences could create differences in the clones, given that each of the ID sequences would be unique. Only about 3% of your genome codes for coding sequences. So only about 3% of your genome will be turned into proteins. Um, And that requires what's called a promoter, which is a a region before the gene that is kind of the part of the DNA that preps the gene to be transcribed. And then it also requires the transcription start site, which is just a codon, a methionine that's like, hey, this is where you start. 
and the protein, the polymerase, will bind there and start the transcription. All the rest of the DNA that's out there is, at least most of the rest, is regulating that process, whether it's repressing it, enhancing it, changing it in some way. I mean, these could be sequences that are extremely far away or even on different chromosomes that control a gene, but they'll come into contact, the the chromosome and the DNA will fold and bend to make interactions. So a synthetic sequence can be made to code for parts that'll be um, marked for activation or repression. And then if you put that into the genome, these activating or repressing molecules will bind there and then cause them to have these sort of functions. You could totally change a person's like transcriptome, like the way genes are expressed in them just by changing non-coding sequences. Although the clone disease prion that is what attacks the uterus in the leta clones and the brain in the castor clones is a coding sequence because they needed to make this completely new protein. I think the ID tag sequence in itself is a relatively small sequence. And that's one of the sequences. They had a specific location that they knew they wanted to put it. They wanted to attach it to cytochrome C. So they would have put it, they would have made a way to insert it into the genome where it would insert either right before or right after this sequence. And so when the cell's machinery went to transcribe cytochrome C, the ID tag wouldn't get transcribed. It would be after a stop codon or before a start codon. It wouldn't be in the promoter or any other regulatory regions. It would be, they would probably just insert it after the end of the genomic sequence so it wouldn't be touched by the cell's machinery. And we see we see real examples of that like currently even now like you hear you see stories all the time of of using DNA as data storage like oh we put like all of Shakespeare's works inside this this sequence and so it's 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 not out there to to do that a little bit different inside a human being but yeah. yeah. And I mean they do it with all the like transgenic animals that are used in laboratories, they all have these sequences in there that under certain situations won't disrupt the biology. A lot of the manipulations people will do to study specific genes and specific developmental systems are set up in a way so they can have a control where this gene isn't disrupted and then you add a drug to the animal and then the gene is disrupted. So unless a certain element like a drug or a certain protein or whatever is there, then there's nothing, it doesn't get transcribed. It's not affecting the biology in any way. It's kind of like the biological version of when people, when game developers would like hide their credits in the middle of a game. So kind of like putting it in little comment quotes in like HTML. It's there, but it doesn't get shown in the web page or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can find it if you're looking for it, but no one will know it's there if they're just checking it out. Just scrolling through. Yeah. Yeah.
veer fandom word uh, after the science talk for a moment. Because you mentioned transgenic, and I noticed that there was mention of Dark Angel in the book, who's the Dark Angel fan? It, it, me, Nina. <laughs> uh, I would, uh, I had a, I remember, well, I watched it when it first aired, but also I remember when, uh, when I was in high school, they were, it was in syndication and, and reruns were showing and I had like a fourth period spare and I just like walk home during my spare and watch Dark Angel and then walk back to school to like go work on the yearbook committee. Like, <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely me. <laughs> I was just wondering, cause uh, I, I also am a Dark Angel fan and I feel like, I should get Stephanie to watch some of it, and we can do an episode about it. Cause yeah, I haven't seen it. I think it would be interesting. Oh, it's totally camp. But yeah, you should check it out. <laughs> oh, it's, it's pretty ridiculous, but thematically there are similarities, I feel like. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and some similar questions I get asked, too, about like the, the good old like, ethics of playing God with, with people and manipulating their genomes and, and, and that sort of idea. Mm-hmm. And and ownership over self and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So Nina, you had mentioned that writing like the Rachel chapter where you talk about the effects of her brain injury was one of your one of your favorite things to write. I, I also really appreciated that chapter. The the thing that caught my attention first though when I was looking at like the the list of the chapter titles and things was that it was called "My Poor Poor Rachel" is a quote from from her father Ethan Duncan, and I kind of thought, ooh interesting because i feel like rachel's a very polarizing character for a lot of people some people think she can be redeemed some people just think she's totally awful so i i thought it was interesting that your your chapter was titled that and i was i was curious to see like what tack you were going to take talking about her uh do, do you have like strong feelings about her just as a character aside from like the science portion of her her storyline I love oh, her I, as a character. I yeah, me too. I love Rachel. Uh, we often like Casey and I when we're talking about different clones. I, I know I we often say that like Rachel's one of the most interesting clones to think about, for sure. And like really think about like who she is as a person and how she fits into all of this and her motivations and like just as a character, she's she's fascinating. <laughs> and in terms of like, I don't know, I I. Oh, gosh, like I, I'm not, I'm not one of those like people who are, who are in the boat of like, you know, Rachel just needs a hug, ooh, ooh. like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's not, not where I am with her. I think that no. um, she enjoys being who she is. I feel like, like she would never. It, it's not just a like, oh, everybody abused Rachel. Like she makes choices. A lot of her choices were like born of her circumstances but like to right, a certain extent but... too you have to ask like a lot of these traits that she's had she has and how like angry and manipulated manipulative not to mention how like manipulated she has been it's just like asking like how much of that is born of her circumstances and of her environment and how much of it is just who she is as a person one of the one of the most fascinating scenes actually is is uh in season five when when rachel and allison finally face off and i was so glad for Allison's remark that we're we're not so different when uh, upon Rachel saying that she wanted to put her hands around Allison's throat uh, because like yeah I, I've been arguing for a while that like if if Allison had been brought up in Rachel's conditions they probably would be very similar Allison people. and Rachel are so similar in like personality wise I feel like it's just they were brought up completely differently so it manifested completely differently like I almost wish there had been another clone raised self-aware somewhere else like in an isolation of crystal and not crystal oh my god of, of rachel 
Imagine if Crystal had been raised <laughs> self-aware. She would, see, still wouldn't to know it. They would have told her she was a clone. <laughs> she would have said, no. Yeah, <laughs> you don't look clone. like me at all. What are you talking like about? No. <laughs> like that, that is, see, that is the longitudinal study I want to see, mm-hmm. is like two self-aware clones raised in, in isolation of each other and, in, 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 and like naive of each other, but otherwise. Right. They don't know there's another one. Yeah. yeah. Where's that experiment, Diad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think you make a good point, though, because I think we see in both Allison and Rachel, even though they were raised in sort of different circumstances, they both have that same tendency to not express their anger or try not to express their anger until it becomes just so much they can't help it and they kind of explode to some extent in often very potentially self-destructive ways. Like when Rachel oh, yes. smashes the stem cells that uh, they'd gotten from Kira. And I, I thought it was really, I hadn't really thought about it in this regard, because I think it's easy, well, at least in, in Rachel's case, to be kind of like, well, she's awful. Of course, she would kind of do this. Uh, but you talked when talking about her, her brain injury, how potentially her actions at the end of season four toward her mother, when she stabs her mother and then stabs Sarah, could have been effects of the brain injury to her frontal lobe. Yeah, like, that. you know, there's so many ways when with uh, with brain injury where you know, how it can impact people and impact their, their functions. But like just the fact that, that, that it was pointedly in, you know, like her frontal lobe and like her orbital frontal lobe can kind of like, there have been, there have been, there is a precedent for cases of, you know, much reduced impulse control. And with someone like Rachel who already has greatly reduced impulse control in, in periods of like, you know, high emotion, it's, it's not that far out there. Uh, but I think I think what we also mentioned too is like one of the more common effects or impacts of brain injury is it's usually depression in some form mm-hmm. and absolutely did we saw that in Rachel like Rachel's already the loneliest clone but in most cases that's what you're going to see in part because of the injury and in part because of you know a person's capacity being reduced in some way from an injury and having to deal with that and learn how to deal with that. And and the work that you have to put into it, and the emotional workload of having to, of having to work with that change in in your person. Think about it now. There is that scene early in season two where we see her have sort of a flash of just wrecking her office, which mm-hmm. I wonder now if they were planning on doing this when they wrote that scene, sort of as an indicator of the things that she wants to do but isn't. Yeah. Like, these are internal now, but they're going to be external potentially in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes me think of, like, and the fact that she, that's not what she presents to people. That's actually another cool parallel between Allison and, and Rachel is that they both want the, they, they both want the gold star and the pat on the head. And they, they don't really care so much about, like, Allison a bit more than Rachel, but they don't, their, their motivation isn't to be good people. It's uh, especially like good case. people. But, like, yeah, it's about, like, their motivation is for people to think yeah to see them as what they want people to see them as like in Rachel's case seeing seeing her as this this powerful person in in this position of power she wants that veneer and will hold on to it as much as she can and and Allison's the same way she wants to be seen as the model citizen you know what I mean and she will cling to that with like every last fingernail yeah they both are, are very approval seeking oh yeah so do you have a, a favorite clone, Nina? I, I've, Casey has expressed quite a bit of affection for Kasima, uh, but Yes, always. <laughs> so do you have a favorite one? Well, it's, it's a hard question to answer. So yeah, like Rachel's my favorite clone to think about. Narrative-wise, 
Beth is probably my favorite for narrative just because I loved that for the first, you know, up until season four, we only knew Beth as either what people said about her or uh, through like Sarah's imagined version of Beth and through like people's like dreamscapes. Like we never actually saw who Beth was as a person. She was kind of just this like uh, this being created out of other people's ideas. So I'm just like in love with Beth as a character in that way. But uh, I have this like really, really special affection for Allison. I love her so much. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. I, I cosplay Allison at uh, at cons and like perfectly though. Have you have you been Allison at Dragon Allison. Con in the past few years? No, I've never been okay. to Dragon Con. I would love to. No, I've been I've been Allison at mostly San Diego Comic Con. I did see the pictures. You're very good. Oh, thank you. Uh, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, and that Fan Expo in Toronto and New York Comic Con I did once. And I think that's it. I was just curious because we, we have seen a couple of Allison cosplayers at Dragon Con. So I was, maybe it was Nina. Anyway. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> I love seeing other cosplayers, especially um, Orphan Black cosplayers. I saw a few just a few weekends ago at, at Fan, Fan Expo. Oh, last weekend. Uh, there were a lot of really great cosplayers. And there was a Cosima in a tux with her Delphine. Nice. And they were great. So good. So do you think you're going to stay with more traditional Allison look in future cosplay? Or are you going to adapt to like her season five more? The purple hair. Oh my God. Freewheeling appearance. <laughs> the stage mom haircut. Carry around a keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Her funky fresh uh, new purple do. Liver deep. <laughs> you know what? A lot of people have asked me that and I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Like I, right now I'm a staunch no um, because my Allison is the Allison who, you know, is, you know, hyper anxious and critical of everyone and walking really fast and covering up for other people's mistakes and her own mistakes. Um, and not so much, you know, new chill kombucha drinking Allison. <laughs> Although I will say that I do love the moment that she has when she first takes out the keyboard, the Korg, and, and she like turns on a preset and is like bobbing her head. <laughs> like it's like the coolest, like most inspired jam for her. Uh, <laughs> so I, I might cosplay it just to, to like steal someone's keyboard um, and just like recreate that moment. But I don't know. I don't know. I feel like she's most recognizable, which is sometimes hard when you're doing like characters that look pretty much, you know, like anybody else on the street. I feel like she's more recognizable as sort of season one through four, Allison. But maybe you could do like one day of hippie freeling, wheeling <laughs> Allison and the rest of the days of the con, you're like regular Allison. Oh, people never recognize me when I cosplay Allison unless they're like diehard clone clubbers. Yeah. Because like, yeah, I just look like this person who you know, accidentally wandered out of J. Crew and into the convention. Um, <laughs> soccer mom. Yeah, like, what are you doing here? Usually I have to, like, stand next to my Cosima. Like, I have mm. a few friends who, who who do a group cosplay with us. And, like, yeah, if I'm, if I'm next to any other clone, it doesn't work. But if I'm standing next to Cosima, people always recognize Cosima. And they'll be like, oh, my gosh, Cosima. And then they'll ask for a photo with her. <laughs> and then ask, like, their bag. And I'll be like, everybody loves Cosima. And they'll be like, oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, my friend does a killer Cosima. Like, she's great. Yeah, I feel like uh, Orphan Black cosplay does tend to work better in groups. Helena is pretty recognizable by herself, especially if you're wearing the wedding dress. I was going to say, we did oh, yes. at Dragon Con mm -hmm. see a wedding dress, Helena. It was really she, good. She was terrifying. It she was. was. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> good. 
But, probably, but let us know if you need a liver deep temporary tattoo because uh, we can hook you up. We have a friend. <laughs> Please, that's awesome. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> it's really funny. The one time I cosplayed, I cosplayed Helena once, and it was more as a dare. Like I put together a Helena cosplay in like six hours, and it was really fun. But I cosplayed MK once, and that was probably the funniest one because it got the most reactions, but people didn't know who she was. So a lot of people, a lot of people shouted the purge at me. Uh, <laughs> okay i feel like i would be unnerved if that happened to me yeah 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 it was really alarming um and i wasn't i was th- this was at san diego comic-con and i was in one panel where felicia day was hosting and i got to ask a question and she didn't know what i was from either but she called me animal head <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, so like it was it was interesting and i know like the real mk would probably have had like her heart like swelled three sizes to have Felicia Day talk to her in any way. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just really funny doing co- uh, like clone play and and not being recognized at all. <laughs> uh, so, Casey, do you have any other clone favorites besides Kasima? Uh, Kasima. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, okay, aside from Kasima, I love Helena. I absolutely love her. I loved her from. The moment we met her, she just, if Kasima wasn't there, I would be totally obsessed with Helena because she's just everything. She's amazing. Like she is the, to me, the best mother like you can imagine, but she's also gonna like kill that drug dealer. No problem. And it's just like, perfect. (laughs) I love her. I concur. (laughs) Yeah. And I can, I, I would just love to sit down and eat an entire donut store with her. That would be pretty fun. <laughs> yes, Chris refers to Helena as her precious murder angel. <laughs> because she's my yeah. precious murder angel. <laughs> that definitely works. Also, I spend too much time on Tumblr, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any other questions you wanted to I don't think so. Over? Okay. I feel like there was one that was tickling the back of my brain, but now I don't remember what it was. Okay. Was it a, was it a question about brains? It was not a question about brains. <laughs> 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 Though I did, speaking of brains, when you were talking about brains in your book, I did kind of go, oh. <laughs> when you're talking about, was like, it the, like leaving... your brain is really mushy passage? Because that was one of my favorites. Yes. <laughs> like your brain, you can leave finger, you can see the impressions of your fingers and the brain after you hold it. That was just, the part. Just because of the weight of the brain itself. Yeah. That was, that was a good descriptor yes <laughs> yeah there there are videos of like people holding fresh brains on youtube if you ever want to check it out <laughs> <laughs> some late night but, like, <laughs> just how like soft it is but yeah please like that's 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 why helmets exist um your brains are really squishy <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that's that's a good place to end wear a helmet folks <laughs> it's true wear a helmet if we've learned anything from orphan black it's wear a helmet even if it's a backwards motorcycle helmet. I was going to say, do they have to be fur trimmed? Because that might be tricky for me. I'm not good with a glue gun. I should. Allison, can you help me? Nina <laughs> <laughs> well, has a glue guns. gun. Yeah, I have yeah. two glue guns. So I can, you know, I can help you out. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, thank you so both so much for, for speaking with us. Are there are there any things that you would anything you'd like to plug on on the on the podcast before we conclude? I mean, we can like shamelessly plug our book. But <laughs> <laughs> well, where can people find the book? Do you have any other projects uh, that you're working on as well that are Orphan Black related potentially? Not currently, maybe no. sometime in the future. Um, right now, 
we're focusing on our lives a little bit. I'm getting married next weekend and Yay. just bought a house. Congratulations. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, and Casey's finishing up her PhD. Yeah. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like the Science of Orphan Black is out now, which is super exciting. And I think it, and it's, um, it's also having release in more countries uh, this month in September. You can find it, you know, on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. Yeah, through your local bookstore, or uh, you can find it on our publisher's website, which is ecwpress.com. And we will link to that in our show notes. Or you, you can call my mom and ask her to give you one of the like ten copies she bought. <laughs> oh. oh yeah, my mom's got some extras. <laughs> You know what everybody <laughs> in your family is getting for Christmas. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. We really do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just to talk for a minute about our other podcasts. Our final Winona Earp season two discussion is live on our multi-fandom podcast, Finalysis. Our friend Annie and Stephanie and I discuss the final three episodes of season two. You can listen to it now and find out how to subscribe at askgenretv.com slash fan. Also on our Killjoys podcast, season three of Killjoys has just wrapped up recently. You can listen to our episode discussions of season three and find out how to subscribe over on our website, askgenretv.com slash killjoys. The name of that podcast is The Quad also, if you want to find it on your favorite podcast app. We don't always say it that way. The Quad, you mean? (laughs) The Quad. (laughs) I like saying it that way. (laughs) I know you do, but we don't always say it like that. (laughs) we would love to hear your thoughts about this interview or if you've read the book your thoughts on the book you can send them to us feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com we love getting voice messages which you can send us in a couple of ways you can record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us Or you can call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. You can follow us on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Tumblr and Facebook. Tatiana's Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. To find our other podcasts about Winona Earp and Killjoys and some other shows, visit our website, askgenretv.com. And in this episode, the abdominal cavity was played by Tatiana Maslany. I'm so sorry, Tatiana Maslany. <laughs> Thank you for listening. 